So what seems like many moons ago, I gave a talk where I handed out this, what might have seen then a complicated or overwhelming sheet with a lot of lists on it. And as I said then, the reason I like to do this on a retreat like this is we talk about many of these teachings and in your retreat brain mode, it's sometimes hard to remember, retain what the lists are, what the teachings are, and certainly what the Pali um, words are. And so just thought that could be helpful. So just wanted to remind you that you do have that. It doesn't have Pali for all of the terms on it, but it has it for a lot of those very central lists. And it's also a pointer to kind of the Buddha's mind or the Buddha's map of of practice, and as it says, the path to understanding liberation and peace, the middle way that he taught. And again, I can't remember if I said that back, said this back then, but this tradition for many years, it's said about 500 years, was an oral tradition where the, the texts, the teachings were retained um, only through rep- repetition. They were um, taken to heart, to memory, and then recited, and that's how people. Uh, learnt and shared the teachings. But you can see, you don't have to get this paper out at all, I'm not really going to be referring to it, but just wanted to remind you of, of uh, that you have it. And how many different kind of maps or lists there are contained in it. And this is not exhaustive either, there's probably more that aren't even on here. And so it includes lists that are may be somewhat familiar to us, like the Four Noble Truths, that very central teaching about suffering and the cause of suffering, the ending of suffering. But then within that list is the Fourth Noble Truth, which has another list in it, so lists upon lists. And that Fourth Noble Truth is pointing to the Eightfold Path, which again is this big map for practice, for how we live our lives, how we are in the world, how we relate to each other, and um, our meditation practice. There are these lists like the, the Ten Perfections or Paramis, these beautiful qualities of mind and heart that are essential to develop, you know, and again, in a big perspective over, over a lifetime or perhaps many lifetimes, as the, the Buddha talked about the list of the five spiritual faculties that that James uh, spoke about uh, a few weeks ago. And these maps or lists I find really helpful, again, just as a pure aid to memory. You know, if there's five of something, you only remember four, you know there's one you have to kind of come up with, ask someone about. Um, but they, they, I do see them, you know, again, not just as lists or something to remember, but really showing us the terrain here. Um, these different modes or uh, ways of practice, things that are important for us to orient around. They're not rail, I can never say this, railway lines, you know, straight and rigid. It's much more like a kind of old style map. Remember those? It's kind of like writing in pen and ink where you'd unfold a big map and it'd have this whole um, evocation of a terrain and the, the mountains and the valleys and what was forested and what was open and where the rivers flowed. And if you knew how to read a map, you could really get a feeling for terrain looking at a map 
like that. So love, I love to look at maps and see that kind of possibility. And then we supposedly advance to where um, it was new and, and, and exciting that you could print some directions from, you know, Yahoo Maps or something, right? And you'd get this piece of paper with this linear set of steps about how to get somewhere. And that was like hot stuff back then. The problem with that list is if you deviated from it or if it didn't make sense, you had no way of knowing where you were if you didn't have a map. If you got off that list of instructions, you were really lost, especially if you didn't know where you went wrong, where you um, went off the, that list. And I've, I've had that experience where I've trusted the list, it didn't work, and then I had no recourse of how to find my way back to where I wanted to go. So then, of course, now we have GPS that are real-time and, and um, interactive. And so they're great, right? That you someone just talks to you and tells you where to go. You don't even have to look it up if you trust the GPS. You can just follow the instructions. And if you do take a wrong turn or the instructions aren't working, you get that voice that says something like recalculating and, you know, hopefully gets you back on track. It's great, especially uh, if you're going somewhere you don't know. And it, But it's only great if the data is accurate. Well, I guess there's the two things, right? There's the data and the human being trying to follow the instructions. Either place, there can be mess-ups. And you've probably heard stories about people following GPS and driving into rivers off boat ramps and, you know, into the ocean or onto railway tracks. I, I heard a story about a woman in Europe who was trying to get to a railway station that was 30 miles away and she drove 500 miles because the GPS kept telling her, you know, keep going and turn here and turn here and she just followed it. So, Two things have to be working, right? The data has to be accurate, the information has to be accurate or be able to be trusted, and we have to be able to follow, follow the guidelines. What I love about the Buddha's map is the data has been tested. It's been time-tested, 2,600 years, probably millions of people following these maps in a way that really served them led them to greater and greater degrees of freedom. So for me, and I think for most of us here, we can really trust these maps. They are very valuable pointers to support our practice. So I want to talk about a map, a list tonight. I actually didn't check it's on there. I'm sure it's on there. Seven factors of, there they call it, enlightenment, I like to say, of awakening. The seven factors of awakening. And it's one of the central maps lists that are um, really pertain to our retreat practice, our meditation practice, especially on intensive retreat. And you might remember Richard talking the other night, said it's his favorite list. I kind of felt, can you have a favorite? That's sort of like having a favorite child or something, you know. They're all good. But this one is so applicable to um, practice that it's very valuable. So what I want to talk about tonight, and the Pali is the Bojanga, Bojangas. And these are these seven qualities of mind and heart um, that we 
cultivate whether we're aware of them or not. And that's the other good thing about these lists is they're both descriptive and prescriptive, but often they're just descriptive of what naturally happens. As we practice and deepen in our mindfulness, there's just this natural unfolding that this list maps out. And so the seven are mindfulness, uh, interest or investigation, energy, rapture, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And we've talked about some of these, but I want to put them together in you know, the, the theme of this map that the Buddha offered. Um, and also as a reflection out of a long retreat I did a while ago at IMS, a six-week retreat at IMS, whereas we do one month, one month, you can do two months, there you can do six weeks, six weeks, or three months. And I was doing a six-week portion of that retreat where... I had the intention to do um, two weeks of, of anapana, of san, uh, samatha practice, just simple breath meditation, and then to open up to vipassana, open up to choiceless attention. So that was my plan, and I'd already you know, had some experience in developing concentration, so that was, um, it's always new, but I'm some, somewhat familiar exploring in that territory. But at the two-week point where I'd made this decision ahead of time, this is when I would switch, what I noticed was real reluctance to leave what felt like the cozy seclusion of the breath, the simplicity and the clarity of that practice to what felt like was going to be a raging storm of all of the six sense doors kind of opening up. Um, and so I had to work with that, you know, this intention to open to insight, to open to uh, choiceless awareness, and this um, preferring uh, of the simplicity of the breath meditation. But what I noticed, I, you know, was able to overcome that reluctance and open up. And instead of it feeling like a kind of raging storm, because of the steadiness of mind, there was actually a lot of balance in the mind and heart. And the meditations were interesting and opening and really able to stay steady even though the objects that I was open to now were much more complex and changing. And this um, teaching or map of the seven factors really became alive in that retreat because of the clarity that the concentration had brought. And so I used that retreat as a time to really explore each of these for or in my own practice and understanding. I'd heard it as a teaching many times and often like, yeah, that's not happening or, you know, not much calm or certainly no joy or rapture. But in this retreat, I was able to really explore it um, and also this sense, and this is a big part of the teaching, of are they in balance? Because in this um, practice, there are three arousing factors. That, uh, mindfulness is kind of the bridge or the support suffuses the three arousing factors of investigation and energy and rapture or uh, interest, joy. And then the calming factors of tranquility, uh, concentration, and equanimity. And so feeling that uh, very alive, it's great. It was, it was very helpful for me. And so this talk 
comes out of my exploration in that retreat. And as I said, this is how the Buddha described um, a map for awakening. You know, these successive steps or openings or deepening prepare the mind, uh, sort of till the soil so that there's uh, the possibility of that deep freedom that he talked about happening. And again, not in any sort of conceptual or intellectual way. It's very experiential, very much out of his experience. And again, what I find with these lists or maps, um, even like archetypes or models, they kind of give us a framework that we can have some trust or relationship to and even a magnetic pull towards because we feel practice unfolding in a way, as I said before, that we can trust, you know, that this is a path that's been walked by many people, talked about by the Buddha. And so even when we're having what might be new or different experiences, knowing the map, knowing the terrain, just like those old style maps, we can recognize something that's new for us. Oh, that's what this is. Or perhaps have a, have a sense, as I said, of what needs to be brought into balance. And there is a, um, a somewhat of a linear progression in this list, in this map. It's not, again, a railway, a railroad track that's um, very rigid. There's lots of feedback loops, and actually they all build on each other, and it's not like we leave some behind as we go forward, but there is a sense that they do support and lead into the next quality. Um, And it begins with our old friend mindfulness that we've been talking about a lot, this capacity, this um, faculty, mental faculty, to know clearly what's happening. This is mindfulness. Um, It's present moment awareness, that's connected with what's happening, you know, and we can make choices. Do we, you know, um, simplify the awareness into single objects like breath or body, really sustain the attention there and deepen what we call samatha practice. Richard spoke about that. Or it can open up to the full range of experience. Either way, mindfulness is the functioning of mind that helps us do those practices. And so it's knowing what's happening. That's the simple definition. But with, um, and there's a lot more I could say about this, but samasati as a um, factor in the Eightfold Path, some are meaning wise or right or beneficial, so wise or right mindfulness, it's onward leading in that it supports the deepening of wholesome states and the letting go of unwholesome ones. And as we practice, it's a little bit reflective in the sense that you're being mindful, but you know you're being mindful. You're, there's a sort of intentionality about this cultivation of this quality. Because you can be, you know, people can be mindful doing all kinds of things that require focused attention. You know, a rock climber or a surgeon can, can be mindful, but they're not developing mindfulness in the way we're developing it, where it's really part of a path of practice in the service of this clear seeing, simple, direct seeing. 
And the Buddha said he knows of no other factor as powerful as mindfulness for the cultivation of wholesome states of mind and the diminishing of unwholesome ones. That's one of the powerful functions of mindfulness. But Sayadu Tejaniya, one of my teachers, says that many people believe that strong mindfulness is a kind of power. Actually, strong mindfulness is simply an awareness that is free from anxiety, expectations, or wants. A mind that is free from concerns, that is simple and content. But I actually think mindfulness is a kind of power. It's not easy to have a mind like that, right? I remember seeing a, a, just a short clip of Helen Mirren, that great actress, uh, and she was going to do some teaching on acting. And she walked in to this um, set room set and sat down, and then she said to the camera, I just did the most difficult thing an actor can do. I walked naturally, or I walked as myself. And it's like we can get so sort of self-referential or concerned about ourselves that it's hard to be natural. It's hard to let the mind be natural. So it's a skill we develop with practice, this, this um, uh, faculty of mindfulness, so important. But as we develop it, mindfulness is what allows us to see, to meet, experience clearly and directly at all of the six sense doors. As we do that, what naturally develops is this next factor in the list, which was Dhamma Vichaya. And it's usually translated as investigation or interest. I think we've talked about this. Um, I like, as I said, intimacy. You know, this really dropping into experience and knowing it as directly um, as we can. Because investigation can seem a bit heavy-handed. I know that um, Joseph Goldstein likes to translate this term as interested attention. So it's really um, this, yeah, connecting with our experience. But again, seeing... Ben- I don't know if I'd say beneath the surface, but seeing as clearly as we can, this intimacy, this interest, doesn't have to you know, get in there and change or manipulate experience. It just sees it for what it is with as little layering and projection as possible. I remember hearing a story of a journalist interviewing Mother Teresa. Maybe you've heard this. And the journalist asked her, what do you say when you pray to God? And she said, I don't say anything, I just listen. And so the journalist said, well then what does God say to you? And she said, they don't say anything, they just listen. And if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. (laughs) But I love that image of Mother Teresa and her sense of God, just like resonating with each other, right? in this wordless communion. And I think it's a little bit the same here. Um, When I reflected on this retreat that I mentioned, the word that came to my mind about this quality was listening, but not, you know, listening with the ears, but kind of listening with the heart or the full body, this full-bodied presence, sort of the body listening to the body, the sense of attention or interest. 
Again, with as little sort of judging or evaluating as possible. Just this, just this, like this. And this quality can sometimes involve reflection or some, um, some even thinking, naming, knowing what's happening. This is where the noting practice can be useful. Um, but the art is how much. You know, mainly this is a non-verbal knowing a non-verbal exploration that we're talking about. It's just mindfulness knowing uh, the fullness of our experience, uh, the range of our experience. And this practice is so much more about um, getting simpler and letting go than piling on concepts and trying to figure out, starting to really trust this direct, simple knowing. As we get interested in our experience, it becomes interesting. As it becomes interesting, we can get more interested in it. So this great feedback loop can start to happen. And something that days or weeks ago would have seemed totally uninteresting, some subtle sensation or even the breath, can become fascinating. The mind can just be totally connected to and curious about this experience of, of hearing of the, you know, the water bubbling down the stream or the frogs croaking. So we get interested. And because or out of that interest, the next factor of energy or virya is the Pali term, can really start to get also in feedback loops. Because it does take energy or effort to do this practice. We talk about kind of surrender and ease and effortless, but there's some effort that's needed. The effort to, you know, on a literal level, you know, the effort to be mindful, even though it's very subtle, it doesn't take much, but it takes intention. It takes being willing to keep showing up. But certainly there's effort or energy in just doing a schedule doing your sitting, doing your walking, uh, developing the continuity of mindfulness. When we all began this retreat, again, that moon, many moons ago, you probably had uh, strong bouts of low energy, of sleepiness, and the body just feeling heavy and dull and kind of impermeable to mindfulness. And it may still be like that, hopefully not all the time, but it's shifted, I imagine. You know, the people I talk to, there's an aliveness now. Even things can still be difficult, but that same kind of solidity or heaviness, not here. So we do gain more energy as we practice. It's like the mindfulness is feeding back into itself instead of being dispersed as we usually do out in the world. And so again, there are these loops that... um, start happening where we actually find we have more energy. That that practice gains a momentum. We can sometimes get up a little earlier or stay up a little later or our continuity is easier to maintain. There's, There's more commitment. So this kind of energy is not like a battery that runs down. It's definitely a rechargeable battery. And mindfulness is really what Mindfulness and Dhamma Vichaya are really what recharges the battery so we can keep staying present. 
And the word that I liked for this practice is resolve. Again, instead of energy, because energy sounds like it's something we should be doing. There's kind of a pushing sometimes in our understanding of that word. But for me, resolve just meant being willing to stay present, to keep showing up, to keep meeting and connecting with experience, especially if things are difficult, which, you know, let's face it, they often are difficult in the body or the mind. Again, Joseph, I've heard him say he likes courage for this word, virya, a courageous heart that just keeps willing, keeps being willing to show up. And so it's getting over that resistance that we might have, that patterning in in the mind of pulling away from experience. Oh, this is too difficult, or I'm too tired, or mindfulness can't meet this experience. It, It makes me think of, you know, if you're wanting to go swimming, say in the ocean, and around here the ocean's pretty cold. Um, but I love going swimming, but there's always that time where you, you know, you get up to your knees that every cell in your body goes, don't do this. You know, this is too painful, it's too cold, it's contraction. And yet you see other people out there swimming, they seem to be surviving, you know you've done it before, you usually enjoy it, but that place where it just like, there's a habitual resistance or shrinking away, pulling back from whatever this experience is. And finding, again, the courage or the resolve. You just have to get over. There's often some kind of hump. Or just surrender. Just jump in. You know, Don't sort of do the little few sprinkles here or there. It's like, jump in. And usually it's fine. You know, might still be cold, but the whole body gets energized by that experience. So all of us are meeting that again and again and again. We don't just, you know, do that on the fourth day of the retreat or something and we're good to go. It's again and again and again. This willingness to meet experience, this willingness to keep showing up, this sense of resolve or determination or courage. This practice does take courage to keep opening and paying attention, to to not listen to the stories in the mind of this being too hard or too difficult. And so... This also has uh, feedback loops that begin, a momentum that starts to happen. Um, And the mindfulness can actually become more effortless. Or it just has its own life. We don't have to so much be pushing at it anymore. We're just naturally able to sustain you know, again, and I know, as I say, this will all have our ups and downs and times of the day where we're not so, um, uh, mindfulness isn't as easy or accessible, but you can feel this potential that's happening here of more effortless, sustained mindfulness. And so a lot of feedback loops around these first uh, few factors. As that energy starts to build, through the interest, through the sustained attention, um, the next factor is often developed. And again, we've talked about this. This is the factor of piti, P-I-T-I, which again, we don't have a good translation for. We usually translate it as rapture or rapt attention, sustained attention, absorbed attention, 
sometimes bliss, sometimes joy. There's a lot of different words that are used. But I think they all can be misleading. What's why I like rapt attention. Because pity doesn't necessarily have to feel joyful or have a, a, a strong, um, pleasant Vedna. It can actually sometimes be even challenging when this energy is strong. But it's really... Um, out, out of the sustained attention, the sustained mindfulness, this rapt attention again feeds on itself and starts to invite us into, um, you could say, absorption. We become so easily or effortlessly present. The objects, whatever changing objects or single objects, um, the mind is so happy to rest in the present moment that this energetic expression of pity can start to mani- manifest. Um, and this can manifest physically through um, energy through the body, vibrations, tingling, warmth, coolness, different sort of strong vibratory sensations. It can be a kind of sense of swelling or uplifting. Often in pity, I, I feel like there's a string pulling at the top of the head and the posture can be very upright and, and open. Um, can be sort of a pushing or swaying, rocking kind of movements. Some people get goosebumps or tingling, can see visual lights, internal lights, either bright lights or colored lights. Can have distortions of perception where things that you know, we're used to feeling so ordinary can really shift in how we perceive them. And so every time someone, I'm describing this, various ones of us will go, when am I getting that? Or, you know, why aren't I having that? Um, Just to know that this quality can also be very subtle. The most important aspect of it is this rapt attention is the capacity of the mindfulness of the mind to stay with or in our experience, not be distracted, not be um, going off into discursive thinking, wandering mind. So it can be very subtle um, feelings of pleasure, but again, on a really subtle level of just delighting in the mindfulness, delighting in being present and having that again, create these feedback loops that mindfulness becomes what the mind wants to do, wants to pay attention, wants to stay present. And really important to remember, pity is not what we practice for. These strong energetic components of experience that can happen, but again, want to emphasize, can be really very subtle, really very subtle. There a doorway or onward leading to the next of these factors. And it's interesting that something that's quite, um, can be quite energetic, like this expression of pity, as I said, not always, but that it leads to this next factor of tranquility, pasadi in Pali. What has happened here that as we've gotten more connected, more interested, these other factors all supporting this rapt attention, we're not so distracted. Whatever were the hindrances for us of thoughts, future, past, you know, challenges in the body tends to diminish 
tends to move into the background or not be that prevalent. And so out of that rapt attention and the, as the energy, if the pity is manifesting energetically as it subsides, what becomes accessible or what becomes known, what becomes our experience, is this calm, tranquil state of pasadi, tranquility. It often comes with a quietening, a stilling of the body, and a stilling of the mental processes. I remember seeing a cartoon. I often say, we can know meditation's getting more mainstream. There's more cartoons about it, so I can collect them. And there was one, two people meditating, and one saying to the other, are you not thinking about what I'm not thinking about? But really want to highlight that meditation isn't about not thinking. You know, don't think, stop thinking. Thinking is bad. Thinking means not meditating or bad meditation. It's about developing a wise relationship to our thoughts. In that wise relationship, as we stop feeding the the typical discursive, judging, fixing, comparing, evaluating thoughts, they tend to diminish. As they diminish, that's what we experience is calm, is the quiet mind, still paying attention, Still very present, awake, alert, but not with this frittering, restless kind of energy that's so familiar to us. And for many of us, the the first experiences of this, even the repeated experiences of this state, can be confusing. It's like we're not used to it. I remember one teacher saying that she had a, um, a very... Um, strongly emotional life and meditation practice and when she first experienced calm she would use a note for it with a question mark like calm? Could this be calm that I'm experiencing? So maybe that for you we're so not used to that quietness stillness of mind and body that um, we don't recognize it and so a common Um, response to it is to be bored or to think nothing's happening. Come into your practice meeting, not much happening. It's pretty boring, you know. And, you know, I like to ask a few questions because whatever, if your relationship to the experience is boring, it will seem boring, of course, but if you just take away um, the little bit of aversion that's there, boredom is just a lack of interest. You take away the aversion, add some interest, and there's calm. There's these profound states that um, are so valuable for us. Again, I can remember on a another retreat at IMS, going to, again, the three-month retreat, immediately after 9-11, the retreat usually starts around the middle of September. And, you know, that was such a intense time for all of us, for, for everyone, I think. And all of those images and fears and um, unknown uh, about what was happening in this country, in the world. And going on retreat seemed both like a, a crazy thing to do, but also a whole sanctuary. And it was a relief to step out of, you know, being filled with those images and, and all of the news and the 
you know, projections that people were making about what might be happening was such a relief just to kind of dial that down. And I remember just feeling the whole mind-body go, oh, thank you for, you know, lessening that agitation. As often happens, it didn't stay that way because we take that with us, right? That, that trauma, that activation. And so the mind, you know, ramped up again. But just to have that sense of relief of, of how powerful it is to not keep stirring the mind, not keep bringing in whatever's challenging for us. Again, not pushing it away, denying, but just trusting the simplicity of presence and surrendering to our experience. Um, And as we do that, as we steady and start to trust this calm, whether it's momentary or we find it can sustain for, for periods, it leads to the next factor, which is samadhi. Um, and I know Richard uh, spoke about this quite a lot the other night, um, starting by saying that we usually translate this term samadhi with concentration. And it's not a great Translation, again, it's interesting, we often say if, if we don't have a good English word for the Pali, it probably means we don't have a great sense of what that actually is in our cultural heritage, in this language that we're using to um, understand it. So, uh, as Richard said, uh, I also agree, I, I prefer... Um, translations like unification of mind or collected mind or non-distracted mind because it's not the kind of concentration that's rigid or um, out of a lot of effort or pushing things away. It's more like a distilling. It's a letting things settle. Letting as things from the calm, the mind naturally settling. It's a um, very natural unfolding. And any meditation practice that you do intensively in a sustained way will deepen and develop concentration. It's just the nature of the mind as we come back again and again um, to our present moment experience. And so the question usually is, well, how much concentration is needed? And again, Richard spoke a lot about this the other night of, you know, the the potential of deepening into states of absorption called jhana or what we call access concentration where the mind is just steady enough to stay with the chosen object in a sustained way. And, you know, there's a great benefit to jhana. I practice and teach um, that as a as a as a way of deepening in the meditation. But most of the time, this sort of level of access concentration or heading towards in that direction is all that's needed for us to see clearly, to deepen um, the wisdom and the insight. And so in that um, development, there are two main forms of concentration. Again, I think Richard pointed to these. One is the one-pointed ekagata, or he called it exclusive concentration, where we take a single object, like the breath, like the brahma-viharas, the repetition of phrases, and we just keep highlighting that, coming back to that, and everything else we say, not now, and that can really deepen um, the concentration. 
But there's also what's called kanika samadhi, which is moment-to-moment concentration. And that's what we do in our mindfulness or insight vipassana practice where we're open to changing experience. So things, we're not just choosing one object or simplicity of practice. We're open to the range. What's continuous is the mindfulness, is the knowing. And as that continuity gets sustained, the concentration can really be deepened in a way that can be very powerful. And so we start to see it's not the object that's important, it's this continuity of mindfulness. And it can deepen with either either method. And as the Buddha said, never underestimate the power of a concentrated mind. It was one of the unknowables, one of the things he said that we can't truly fathom, a concentrated mind. And he used these great words to describe its its capacity. He said this: a concentrated mind becomes malleable, flexible, no, malleable, wieldy, and steady. And these point to this mind that's actually that we can shape through our clear intentions. And wieldy, meaning we can use it in the service of uh, our deepening, our awakening, and this steadiness, meaning it can stay with the range of experience. And so when you support that kind of mind with wisdom, that's what allows the deep seeing that leads to freedom. And I really feel with this sustained practice that we're changing the neural pathways. We're developing different habits of mind. And so this capacity to bring that kind of steadiness of attention, clarity of attention to this mind-body experience and that we see things more clearly. We can stay with even very subtle or challenging objects like the mind. As we're able to do that, it leads to the last of the factors, which is equanimity, upekka, our last residence hall up there. Now this factor of mind, someone might give a a whole talk on it um, later in the retreat, because it's so important in the Buddha's teachings, and so often misunderstood can be misunderstood that it's a kind of cool, disinterested, disconnected kind of mind state. Um, That's not equanimity. True equanimity is responsive, alive, uh, connected. If if it's disconnected from what's happening, it's not true equanimity because it's removing itself from the joys and sorrows, from the pleasure and pain of life. True equanimity is in all of the changing nature of our experience, but it's undisturbed. It's its um, capacity for being present and knowing what's happening is undisturbed. And so it's a comes from a deep and profound acceptance, as um, Ajahn Sumedha would often say. It's like this, you know. This experience is like this, and with that attitude, we can meet experience. In, there's this great book called The Island. It's a compilation of the Buddhas and other great meditation teachers' um, teachings on awakening, 
um, by Ajans Pasano and Amaro. And they say, uh, Upeka, equanimity, is the highest of the factors of awakening. When the seven factors are developed successfully, they lead to the penetration of the object on which they are focused. Penetration or direct spiritual experience means awakening to and deeply realizing the true nature of things. So in equanimity, we see clearly the true nature of experience. How it's conditioned nature, it's unsatisfactory nature, it's uniquely personal nature, it's impersonal nature. Equanimity is one of the factors of mind that really helps us do that. And it's said to be, again, this doorway or, or um, what's the opposite of a landing strip where you take off, you know, the mind then from this place of deep equanimity, seeing clearly the mind is ripe for insight, ripe for letting go. And so our practice becomes this ongoing Um, process of what the Buddha talked about where we feed the factors of awakening, these positive, these wholesome, onward leading factors, and we starve the hindrances. And the hindrances are often seen in sort of counterpoint to these factors of awakening. The hindrances hinder our capacity to see clearly, to awaken. The factors of awakening support us in awakening so they can be seen as as sort of counterpoints to each other and so this um, metaphor of starving the hindrances feeding the factors of awakening anytime we do one we're necessarily doing the other if we engage wisely with the hindrances see them for what they are practice with them not get entangled with them it's inevitable that we're actually supporting the factors of awakening. And as we strengthen the factors of awakening, it's inevitable that we'll be starving the hindrances. They just are so in um, relationship to each other. And I often talk about finding the wholesome thread in the hindrances. Each hindrance has a kind of wholesome aspect to it, And part of our practice can be just kind of catching that thread. Instead of being lost or overwhelmed or resisting the hindrance, it's like, okay, what's onward leading here? So say for greed, for sensual desire, is often um, a great warmth of heart or generosity or passion. And that can lead to dhamma chanda, which is wholesome desire, desire for dhamma understanding and experience. In anger or aversion, there can be discriminating wisdom or clarity. Can, can we use that sort of wisdom instead of investing or identifying with the anger, but separate out, where's the wisdom here? Where's the clear seeing? In sleepiness, just takes a little bit of interest, and there's calm or c- concentration or uh, contentment. In restlessness, we can find the energy there. And can we take that restless energy and actually turn it to practice, turn it to knowing what's happening? And doubt, when we really see it for what it is, can invite us into more interest or investigation, clarity, because we're called to know what's true, what's really happening, 
What's the source of the confusion? So again, this this counterpoint between um, the skillful responses and the hindrances. Our practice isn't just about you know never having or getting rid of the hindrances. It's using them in our practice to deepen our capacity to awaken. And so it's a lot about balancing. And again, as I said, knowing the map, some of these factors might be very clear or resonate for you, others perhaps not so much. But just knowing the lay of the land can really um, be a guide for us. You know, if there's uh, too much energy, um, I mean, it's sort of obvious, right? The, The energetic factors... Oh, we need more calm. If there's too much dullness, we need more energy or interest. We start to know how to balance these factors for ourselves. So the calming factors are balanced by the energizing factors. And the concentration or the sort of singleness of mind can be um, balanced by interest, getting more engaged if that leads was leading to dullness. And so being willing... To, to open to experience and see, you know, where am I getting caught or maybe stuck? There's a trajectory that's, that's not, doesn't feel onward leading. And what would help in this kind of balancing? And so being willing to engage in this way. And what I think is really helpful about many of these maps, especially the ones that are very practice-oriented, what I've seen is they're kind of like a bell curve where there are what you might call the foundational or the energizing factors. So in this list, it's mindfulness, interest, and energy. Those we can actually um, do with some intentionality. Again and again, needing to put in wise effort, needing you know this possibility of being interested, continuity of mindfulness. We can't obviously completely control them, but we can uh, create intentions to arouse those foundational factors. And then there's usually some peak experiences, more heightened experiences that are more resultant. You know, you can't make rapture happen. It needs this willingness to... um, do this foundational work, this steady work of developing the mindfulness and the continuity of mindfulness. And then these peak experiences or more heightened experiences, often pity is one of those that's at the peak of this curve, but they always tend to more calming factors, always tend to more simplicity, tranquility, calm, concentration, equanimity. I just, for me, it was really helpful to see that and to start to trust that this practice is so much more about simplifying and letting go and calming, you know, stilling, than it is about, you know, getting some exciting peak experience or forcing through to some kind of ecstatic idea we have of what meditation should be like. We really need to both take our time and trust that we're um, skillfully meditating when we're just putting in this sort of basic effort of showing up and being present 
moment after moment, hour after hour, how valuable that is. And then that enables the, 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 the capacity to open to these perhaps sometimes more intense experiences, but we don't get caught there. That the, the calm and the equanimity feel more beneficial, that, you know, there's a natural gravitational pull as we know these maps. We can just have a sense for ourselves of what, what would be beneficial, onward leading, supportive for the deepening of our practice. And so trusting the letting go, trusting the simplicity, trusting the calming, the stilling, the... the um, uh, unification of experience. This is the important direction this practice goes. And so knowing these maps can be helpful. Again, not thinking, oh, I should get somewhere, what are, where are other people up to, and judging or evaluating. But trusting your own intuition. You know, we've said in so many ways, this is a a very flexible kind of practice that we're offering here, and each of us finding our own way of navigating. But knowing the map, you can trust your experience because it's held in this container, this this field of, of practice that many, countless millions have trod before. We can start to trust this merging of our own individual unique experiences and these universal maps for practice. I'm a, I'm a bird watcher, not a, a very good one, but I like to do it. And, you know, sometimes I'll just read a bird book and look at the pictures, birds I haven't seen before. And it's always so interesting when I see a new bird and never seen before and the name for that bird will come. You know, a totally new experience, but some memory of a of a photo, of a, a sense of that bird. Or even if it's a bird that I know and I just get a flicker of a view of it, but something about its shape or its flight pattern, oh, that's a woodpecker. I remember the first time, actually, I was in India. And in Australia, as far as I know, again, it's been a long time since I lived there, we don't have woodpeckers. I'd never heard a woodpecker. And I was in a forest in India, and I heard a sound I'd never heard before. And I'm like, that sounds like a sound a woodpecker might make. And so I sat and there looking around and found a woodpecker. My first woodpecker was a great sighting. Not, write it off your list. Some, it's not a great analogy, but... Maybe you have a bit that sense, you know, when you're having this experience, you know, even pity the first time we have it, it's like, what's going on in my body? It's like, ah, you know, this energy, this sensation, this subtle pervading sense of absorption in experience. Ah, this is what this is. I can, I can know this. I can trust this. I can open to this. And especially the calming factors, tranquility, concentration, equanimity, we start to have this visceral sense and it becomes almost like a magnetic pull towards these states, these experiences, trusting them. Again, not out of projection or striving, but some deep intuitive 
sense. And it all comes out of our willingness to keep showing up, to keep paying attention, to keep beginning again and again, trusting the letting go, trusting the simplifying, and seeing for ourselves this possibility of peace or contentment, of greater and greater clarity that leads to the insights that free, that free our hearts and minds from suffering. So let's just let the words settle into silence. So thank you for your attention and again, time for some walking, perhaps a cup of tea or some stretching, cool night air before coming back for our last sit with chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.